Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report magazine. I'm April Domboski, filling in for Sasha Koka. Have you ever heard someone calling your name? Then you look around and no one's there? Or you feel your phone vibrate, but actually it didn't. Then you have technically experienced psychosis. For most of us, it will never go further. But for people who later develop schizophrenia, it often starts just like this. It started as calling my name. I'd hear my name, and I was confused. Too often, we don't treat psychosis until it gets really bad, sometimes months or even years after the first symptoms. Not even close to enough training to be able to say, oh, I think you're having psychosis. Let's go to the hospital. No, instead it took months for me to end up in the hospital. But what if we intervened earlier? On today's show, we take you inside the minds of three young people experiencing psychosis. They describe how it crept up on them, how it took hold, and how the newest treatments help them rewire their thoughts. When Yvonne finished high school, she was excited to get out of the Bay Area for a while. She moved to the East Coast to serve in the AmeriCorps, teaching sixth grade math. Then she stayed for college. I love science, math and science. She decided to major in nutrition, and one day in her anatomy class, she was sitting in a big lecture hall when she got a funny feeling. The teacher was lecturing, and all of a sudden, it's, I thought the teacher was talking about my body. I'm like, why is he telling the class about, about me? Why is, why is he talking about my kidneys? How dare he? And I got really scared, and I ran out of the class. A few days later, Yvonne started hearing things. It was like a radio was on in the background of her life, with people chattering constantly. By the way, we're calling Yvonne by a family name and altering her voice to protect her mental health history. For months, she was able to shake it off, the chatter. But then the voices started speaking in full sentences, telling her what to do. You're worthless. You should go jump off a bridge. Take that knife and cut yourself. Her doctor prescribed some medications, but still, Yvonne started to lose perspective. Maybe the voices weren't just her mind playing tricks on her. Maybe they were real. That's when the aliens arrived. She heard their ship hovering outside her window at night. It was just like this loud screeching sound. The aliens told her they'd come to abduct her. They said, we're here for you. You're a bad person, so we need to remove you from this planet. And then I'd hear a bunch of, like, gargled noises that was, like, their language. 
that I couldn't understand. Yvonne had no doubt this was real. And when God started talking to her a few weeks later, that was real too. He told her she was going to be the next Jesus. He was going to give me instructions on how to on how to save the world. At first, this made Yvonne feel great. God had chosen her. But then she got scared, overwhelmed by the responsibility. What if she couldn't do it? What if I can't fulfill what God wants for me? He's going to send me to hell, and I'm going to die in hell, and I'm a terrible person. And Yvonne called her mom. She was a probation officer and had worked in mental health court, so she knew what not to say. Yvonne, you're hallucinating. That's not real. Instead, she met Yvonne inside her reality. She told her, gosh, that sounds scary. And she said, you know, you sound like maybe you need some help and, and maybe the hospital can help you. She just had to go to the hospital. She was, she was bad. Yvonne's mom says it was a last resort. She was 3,000 miles away and they had no family nearby. She encouraged Yvonne to check herself in. And she did. And then the minute she got there, she wanted out. In the hospital, they treat you like you are just stupid. Yvonne says she spent a lot of time watching TV. She remembers it was days before she saw a doctor. He only came at 11 at night after the staff made her take a sleeping pill. So he would come in my room trying to wake me up and I wouldn't wake up and he would write in his chart that he saw me. Yvonne says she left the hospital with some new medications, but no plan. She managed to limp through the end of the quarter. The voices were so distracting now, she couldn't make it through class anymore. She couldn't read anything. Eventually, she dropped out and went home to Northern California. She was miserable. My life wasn't my own. It was up to these voices because they told me what to do. They wouldn't go away and I couldn't do anything with them. So they ruled my life. Yvonne was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. In short, schizophrenia with bouts of mania or depression. I thought my life was over. She found a therapist at Kaiser, but her mom says she only had time to see Yvonne once every six weeks. When they did meet, she didn't seem to know what to do when Yvonne wanted to talk about her voices. She would just skip over it and not really address it I and mean, talk about my anxiety instead. Eventually, Yvonne says her doctors acknowledged that she couldn't get what she needed at Kaiser. They paid for her to go to an outpatient program at UC San Francisco, one that specializes in psychotic disorders in young people. Right away, Yvonne knew this would be different. In my first session, we set goals that I wanted to achieve, and I thought that was really cool because no one had ever asked me what my goals for treatment were. The UCSF Early Psychosis Program is one of about 50 in the state and 300 in the country. They were started about 15 years ago with what was then a revolutionary idea. See, back in the 80s and 90s, doctors say they didn't really know what to do with schizophrenia. They prescribed high doses of antipsychotic medications that basically turned people into zombies. They told them to give up on work and sign up for disability payments instead. UC Davis psychologist Tara Needham is part of a new generation of doctors that said, what if we ask patients what they want and actually work with them toward full recovery? It's not just about stabilizing you clinically. 
It's about making sure we don't lose track of your future. You should be in college. You should be living on your own. With other conditions like diabetes or cancer, we know that the sooner people get into care, the better they do. We now know the same is true of psychotic illness. But Neenam says most people in the U.S. don't get into care until a year and a half after their first psychotic episode. That's bad. If we can catch people before that, the data show us those people will show greater reductions in symptoms. Their voices and delusions go down. And greater improvements in overall functioning. They're more engaged with their friends and doing better at work or school. Neenam says there are a few reasons why starting treatment earlier works better. Reason number one. They're more responsive to medication. They will respond at a lower dose, often more quickly. If you lower the dose of antipsychotics, you lower the side effects, and then people are more likely to take them. Reason number two. Families are still generally more involved at the beginning. They are more supportive, more curious, more open. If family connections fray, there's a higher risk of people getting so sick they end up on the street. Reason number three, and this is the most important. Folks are still in that questioning phase. Like, they kind of come out of it, and they're like, whoa, what was that? When someone is deeply psychotic, their beliefs are rigid, intractable. But if they start treatment earlier, they're more persuadable. For Yvonne, even though she believed the alien ship outside her window was real, new medications helped her open up to persuasion. And her new therapist at UCSF focused on techniques that helped Yvonne challenge her beliefs. So, for example, I'd have a thought, um, aliens are going to abduct me. So then we do evidence for that thought and evidence against that thought. First, she made a list of all the evidence she had that the alien abduction plan was real. I hear them, they're talking to me, I hear their ship. Then she had to list the evidence that they weren't real. For this, the therapist had Yvonne set up a jar in her bedroom. Every morning that she woke up and had not been abducted, she would put a blue marble in the jar. If she had been abducted, she was supposed to put a white marble in the jar. And I had all blue marbles. So that, I'd say that's evidence against they're going to get because they haven't yet. To get control over the voices in her head, Yvonne learned to talk back to them. She would sit in the therapist's office in the chair on the right side of the room and pretend to be her voices. Go back to bed. Don't, don't get out of bed. It's, it's dangerous. Then Yvonne would go sit in the chair on the left and practice her response. Thank you, voices, for wanting to protect me and watch out for me, but I'm going to get up and, and be brave and, and go to the world today. It took a while to get the hang of it, maybe a year. But when she did, Yvonne was able to go back to school. When the voices would start yelling at her while she was in class, calling her dumb, she was ready. And I'd be like, you know what? I really don't appreciate the way you talk to me. Let's talk after class. Let's talk at 2 p.m. The voices wouldn't go away completely, but they would fade into the background, enough where Yvonne could finish class or read a book or do her homework. I just started to feel more in control. Yvonne is 27 now. She graduated college last spring, summa cum laude, and she's now working a full-time job. She's about to move into her own place, and she's got a list of goals for her future. I really want to climb Half Dome and Mount Whitney. She has a lot of friends. They go out to shows in the city or build bonfires on the beach. If she thinks she hears a voice or an alien, she does a literal reality check. I'll just be like, oh, did you hear that? And I'll be like, what? <laughs> you know? And if they don't, I can be like, okay, that's just, that's just a voice. But mostly, she doesn't like talking about her illness with her friends. She'd rather talk about the Kardashians instead. 
I just like to be normal when I'm with them. For Yvonne, the skills she learned from therapy at UCSF were a revelation. But there was actually a whole other dimension of care that she never got. That's because UCSF's program only accepts private insurance. And private health insurers only cover about half the services of early psychosis treatment. People who get care under government health coverage, like Medi-Cal, can enroll in programs like the Felton Institute, which offer not just the specialized therapy like Yvonne got, but a full array of social supports as well. At Felton, they believe it takes a full team of specialists looking out for every aspect of a young person's life. Specialists like Monet Burpee. Monet is rarely in the office. On a typical workday, she heads over to Broadway Street in downtown Redwood City. Standing outside a row of shops, she smooths out her dress and touches up her lip gloss. So I'm about to, like, give you the real experience. Monet marches into the movie theater. Then she visits a tea shop, then an Indian restaurant. My name is Monet, and I'm a job coach. I was wondering if I can speak to your manager about that hiring sign out there. Monet is tasked with keeping an eye on her client's future. If they want to finish college, she helps them stay in school. If they want to work, she helps them find a job. So what positions are you looking for? One uh, dishwasher. Uh, dishwasher? Yeah, a general manager here. Ooh, OK. Yeah. OK. Can, like, Monet has been doing this work for about 10 years. She believes in it. She says helping her clients land a job is about helping them see themselves differently as independent, career-oriented people, rather than permanent patients. Because I'm like, you know, if you work, like, you're going to notice a huge improvement in your self-esteem, you know? It has better long-term positive results versus you just sitting around on SSI. This is what she said to one of her clients, Sandy, after she had her first psychotic episode. Sandy was taking new medications that made her really tired, and she was struggling to get motivated. Since I didn't really have anything to do, I would kind of just take super long naps during the day. Sandy is 20 now. We're calling her by a family name and altering her voice so her health history doesn't disrupt her career path. For her, psychosis hit when she was working her first job after high school at a fast food restaurant. I used to be in the kitchen frying the food or making the burgers and stuff. It was after Christmas, and she'd been stressed out from working too much and not sleeping enough. My coworkers would just be chatting it up or, like, talking about work stuff. And Sandy got this weird feeling that somehow they knew what she was thinking. Like her coworkers could read her mind and were discussing her thoughts. I was like, are they talking about burgers or are they talking about me? <laughs> there was one coworker in particular, a guy she had a crush on, and she was pretty sure he was watching her even following her around. If I was walking down the street. Or hanging out in the park. He was, like, always around. Sandy's mom says she wanted to sleep with the lights on. She said, Mom, is someone here? I can, is someone here? I said, no, no one's here. Are you sure? Her mom says one day, Sandy got so scared, she locked herself in the bathroom. She's just screaming and screaming and screaming, unstoppable. Her mom wanted to call for help. But she didn't have a job at the time. 
This was during the pandemic, and the hotel where she worked had been closed for nearly a year. After she lost her job, she lost her health benefits. My husband's like, how much is that going to cost? She called 911. After a rough couple weeks in the hospital, Sandy was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She enrolled at one of the Felton Institute's outpatient early psychosis programs. And by now, her family was covered by Medi-Cal. They wouldn't have to pay a dime. Right away, Sandy was introduced to a team of providers who would be by her side for the next two years. First, I was set up with the therapist. Who taught her coping skills for paranoia and delusions. A physician. Who prescribed antipsychotic medication. OT therapist. An occupational therapist. Peer specialist. A guy who also had psychosis and recovered. The family support. A parent who coached her mom on how to help her at home. I also was set up with Monet, which is the job coach. When she was ready to look for work, Monet took Sandy with her to the mall on one of her job scouting expeditions. Then they sat down and filled out the applications together. Next thing I know, I was being interviewed and I got hired. Go ahead and order when you're ready. She started out as a cashier at a new fast food restaurant, and within three months, she got promoted to a manager role. Now Monet is coaching her on how to ask for a raise. She has a brand new car. She's meeting new friends. But for Sandy, it's just one step in her long-term recovery plan. I want to focus on getting a degree to get me a better career. The state and federal government invest tens of millions of dollars into these specialized early psychosis clinics every year. They believe it will save money in the long run. Because without sufficient treatment, people with schizophrenia can deteriorate so much, they end up on wage assistance, in a group home, or on the street. All things the government pays for. But commercial insurance companies like Anthem or Blue Shield, they don't face those risks. They don't have the same incentives to cover full-scope psychosis treatment. So they don't. This means low-income families with Medi-Cal coverage can get the gold standard of care, while working in middle-class families cannot. For Sandy, it was mainly because her mom had lost her job and her insurance that she was able to get the best help. It is a reverse disparity. This is UC Davis psychologist Tara Neendam again. She testified at a Senate committee hearing last year about how this disparity shows up at her early psychosis clinic in Sacramento. I can give the Rolls-Royce of care if you walk in and you have Medi-Cal. But she says close to 60% of Californians have commercial insurance. That's 60% of kids who can't get care. 60% of kids whose parents call me crying when I tell them they can't access my clinic. So what happens to these kids? Generally, they're on their own to find a psychiatrist and a therapist who accepts their insurance. Health plans will pay for these medical services. But they won't cover anything else. The job and education support, the peer specialist, the family coach. Health advocate David Lloyd says this is discrimination. If someone has cancer, insurers would never just pay for surgery and radiation, but not chemotherapy. It's a package of services. So the idea that you can split apart the package of services and only reimburse for little components of it really destroys the whole evidence base of what the service is. This almost happened to Sandy. A few months into her treatment, her mom got her job back at the hotel. So the family was back on commercial insurance. 
In most counties, this would mean Sandy would get kicked out of the program. Her mom says there was no way she could afford to pay for a job coach, a family coach, and a peer specialist on her own. I couldn't do it. I would definitely stop all the the help. Even though she says it was keeping Sandy alive. Instead, her mom says she'd have to turn to Craigslist to find people to talk to or look up health advice on YouTube. I just hope and pray for the best, you know. Last year, state lawmakers wanted to help families like Sandy's by forcing insurance companies to cover the full spectrum of early psychosis treatment. One state has done this already, Illinois, and Massachusetts and Virginia are working on it. But the proposal here died under pressure from the insurance lobby. Nick Luisos is from the California Association of Health Plans, which represents companies like Anthem, Blue Shield, and Kaiser. Luisos told lawmakers that insurers don't like being cornered into specific treatments. Science evolves. Research evolves. There could be uh, evidence-based techniques that are better in the future. There are about 80 studies that show the treatment works. People are more likely to stay in school, in jobs, in treatment, and out of the hospital. But what we don't know is how long the positive effects last. There is a lack of evidence of this model's long-term effectiveness. The insurance restrictions create a perverse incentive for middle-income families who need help now. Some parents are so desperate to give their kids the best care, they actually drop them from their health plan and enroll them in Medi-Cal. This turns job coaches like Monet into insurance coaches. I will encourage them to sign up for Medi-Cal so that they have some cushion as a family. A handful of counties, including Sacramento and San Mateo, have taken an even bolder step. Officials say denying young people the full suite of care is so unethical. They decided to use their own taxpayer dollars to pay for the services that private insurers refuse to cover. In the end, this is what allowed Sandy to stay in the Felton program. But advocate David Lloyd says all these workarounds are problematic. For-profit insurance companies are essentially making more profits by allowing the public to pay their bills. That's not an appropriate role for taxpayers to be picking up that burden. Patients who can't switch out of their private insurance plan, they're stuck with the status quo of in-network providers. Finding one who understands psychosis can be a serious challenge. I mean, I've just seen so many therapists that were unable to serve me. Marie is 27. We're using her middle name and altering her voice because of the intense stigma she's experienced around her illness, bipolar disorder with psychotic features. When I had my first episode of psychosis, my therapist thought I was on drugs. She had absolutely no clue what was going on. When Marie was in high school, her bedroom walls started talking to her. She read a book about Buddhism, and it took over her thoughts completely. I didn't want to go to school because I thought I was, like, chosen, and I needed to go meditate to attain nirvana. For three months, she skipped school and sat in meditation on the beach instead. The entire time, she was seeing a therapist. Not even close to enough training to be able to say, oh, I think you're having psychosis. Let's go to the hospital. No, instead it took months for me to end up in the hospital. But the hospital was also horrible. There was no empathy, no respect. Marie later researched this and found that mental health providers actually hold the same level of stigmatizing beliefs about mental illness as the general population. 
I think that has a lot to do with why people hate the hospital is because the people in the hospital hate them. Marie made her own way through college, and when she got a job at a residential treatment program for people with mental illness, she was horrified to discover this thinking was baked into the way staff got trained. Marie's supervisors warned her to watch out for clients who lied. A lot of clients being called manipulative, and that was a really constant thing. Marie quit and found a different approach at the early psychosis program at UC Davis. She got hired to be their peer specialist, drawing on her own experience to counsel young people after their first psychotic episode, when they're the most scared and confused. And the people around them don't understand it at all. But I totally get it, you know? And I think that's the point of my existence, is like, I, I get it. She talks to them about their symptoms, about how to come out to their friends. She becomes a role model to them. I've worked with some families that have told me that, like, I am an inspiration for them, you know, that I was able to manage my symptoms and get better. Marie is now in nursing school, but for her, recovery was a long and very lonely road. She says she can hardly imagine what it would have meant to her, to her self-esteem, if her insurance had covered peer support. I, I think that would have been life-changing. It's like, I believed I wouldn't get better, and it would have been life-changing to see someone who got better say that I could. For Sandy and her family, the full-scope early psychosis care has been life-changing. Sandy has struggled with some of her symptoms recently at her fast food job. The difference is, now she knows what's happening. She knows how to quiet the voices. She knows her mom will understand. She knows there are a half dozen providers who will pick up if she calls for help. When her mom thinks about the generosity, she thinks about her own father. He was a doctor in the Philippines, and none of his patients had insurance. If they didn't have money, he treated them anyway. I remember people paying him with chicken and rice, you know. She says maybe all that help Sandy got was because of him. The luck of landing in a county that paid for all her care. Maybe it was her dad's karma paying off. And that's The California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Today's show was produced in collaboration with the Carter Center's Mental Health Parity Collaborative and the Center for Public Integrity. The show was edited by Kevin Stark and Katrina Schwartz. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. Susie Racho is our director. And Jessica Carissa is our intern. I'm April Dimboski. Next week, Sasha Koka will be back with KQED's political correspondent, Marisa Lagos. They have a new series about what it's like to be mixed race in California, what's hard about it, and what there is to celebrate. It's called Mixed. The most common question that I got growing up was, what are you? I just never understood why, why can't you include all of me? You know, where do I fit in? Who do I identify with? I wonder sometimes if I looked a little more like my mom, or a little more like my dad, how different my life would be. If I just checked one box, 
I feel like it doesn't fully represent who I am. I would describe growing up as mixed race as kind of confusing and complex. I would say that the mixed race experience is a unique one and something that probably other mixed people can only really um, truly relate to. It can be a lonely one. I need all my mixed people to talk about it, express yourself, your perspective. I'm mixed and I'm proud of it. Being myself and having an awesome family. I have always been a mixed person. I wouldn't know how to think of myself otherwise and I'm not planning on changing. <laughs> Some of Sasha and Maurice's guests include former Olympian Ty Babylonia, rapper Guap, and authors Sherry Moraga and Reginald Daniel. They say California is the place to tell these stories because we're home to the largest multiracial population in the U.S. Tune in next week to hear the first episode of Mixed. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.